continue the reflections on the Bodhi Karata Sutta. Once again, I apologize if I'm a little awkward here. I really don't like to teach with notes. Uh, but when, you, when I teach from, with, from a sutta, I feel responsible to make sure I'm covering all the points. When you don't uh, teach with notes, give Dharma talks without notes, it's more spontaneous, but you forget most of the important things. <laughs> Where with a sutra, I don't feel I can afford to do that. And I'm balancing three of them, three different, uh, in some cases, rather different translations, as you recall. It seems that uh, what is emerging as uh, a major thrust of this teaching of the Buddha is the importance of our attitude towards time. It has to do with our relationship to the future, to the past, and as we'll show the present. And if you recall, it also warns us that death is on the way. So it's both psychological time and clock time, in a sense physiological time. Um, <clears throat> and I think overall what's implied is uh, how important it is if we're to learn how to live properly, we have to learn what our attitude towards time is. Time is here. There's, of course, future, past, present. It's not to banish anything, but how to properly use this function of mind, which is only natural, uh, so that we can get free. Um, we left off a few other, a few odds and ends still about uh, the past. Do not, do not pursue the past. Revive, chase after, get lost in the past. Is there other translations on that? In the... Um, we get lost in the past when we have deep regrets about the past, which keep surfacing, deep wounds from the past, which keep surfacing. And like ghosts, invade our present. We get lost in the past when it's very delightful. Something really wonderful has happened that's over with. Sometimes there's the regret about that. A typical one, a number of, it's come up in some of the groups, and uh, it's quite common over the years, is um, reflecting back on a failed relationship or a failed marriage. I don't know if failed is the right word, but one that has ended. And sometimes people feel regret and over and over again, play it back uh, to see where they might have done something that could have saved it. And people would have remained together. It would have gone somewhere. They, needn't have gone separate ways and so forth again and again and sometimes it's years. The Dharma attitude is not that you shouldn't ever review your past. I hope I was making that clear. We're not trying to obliterate the past. But uh, let's say if there is a failed anything or some, something that you regret, it doesn't have to be a relationship from the past, 
and you realize that in some way you were responsible for it. Make it more general than relationship. Pain, hurting someone. Um, to just go over it again and again at a certain point is a waste of energy and futile and, a, and keeps you from using the present in a vital and alive way because it's draining energy. But to go over the past and to see where you really did make a mistake and you have regret and you even can learn from it, that's a useful use of the past from, from the point of view of Dharma. I think it's just from a point of view of common sense anyone. And so, if that comes up for you, see if you can move more in that direction. Um, sometimes this is so misunderstood uh, as if uh, the past has to be, if you're uh, a Vipassana practitioner or, or doing some Buddhist path, uh, you have to really leave the past out. Just you read the sutra, just don't, no past. Uh, it's a little silly because, I mean, I'm making up something now that is even sillier than, it's the silliest thing I can think of. Let's say you, you meet a new person and you're a new friend and you're coming together. And it's only natural for the person to ask, where are you from, where did you go to school? And, <laughs> and, and you say, sorry, I'm a Vipassana yogi. <laughs> we don't get lost in the past, <laughs> just into the now. It's not necessary, it's silly. So you have to be judicious to understand how your use of past events that are over, they really are over in any case, can sometimes be very, very helpful. And at other times, it's just a, a, a broken record, sapping you of energy and preventing you from really changing your life by living fully in the present moment with full vitality. Uh, over the years, um, sometimes it's very difficult to, to look at things that happen from the past. I mentioned people who had great losses yesterday and how, in most cases, it was very difficult for them to just observe painful past memories. But what comes up now and then are pleasant memories that, believe it or not, turn up in interviews. Not believe it or not, anything turns up in an interview. I don't know why I said that. Um, and I remember a retreat some years ago where the person was plagued by um, delightful sexual memory of uh, sex being very, very enjoyable, of a relationship that was long gone, and just playing it again and again. And came, you know, I, I really would like to do something about it. I said, well, observe it. Because it's, it's not to repress it, and it's not to get lost in it. And the person came back and said, I can't observe it. So we both pieced this out together. Essentially what it came down to is that the memory is saying, the sexual memory is saying, this is an unlawful and unwarranted intrusion. You're not allowed to observe this, just, in, just relive it again and again and again. Uh, it's not permitted to, to look at this. And I think that uh, may be similar with the uh, horrible losses that people had in Gulag, etc. 
that somehow it feels uh, like a breach of something sacred. But this, the, the sexual one is not that. It's just simple. It's very pleasurable. And uh, something doesn't want it because when you observe it, it falls apart. Bye-bye. And then you're stuck with yourself as you are here and now. <laughs> On the cushion with no partner. <laughs> yeah. But believe it or not, you can learn to do it, to, to observe it carefully. Uh, Buddhist monks who are celibate have a lot of training in different ways. There are other reflections, which I'd rather not go into this evening, to help them realistically avoid either getting lost in it or denial and repression, which doesn't work. Uh, in fact, with all desires, it's possible to not uh, be at war with desire, but to learn how to examine, to really observe a desire to see what it is, what is it when I really want something? To be able to look at it, not because you want to destroy it, but just look at it with interest, to see where, what its roots are, where, where it's coming from, what it's about. Um, before I move on to the future, there, there's one that is a big one, really, for, I think for many of us, maybe all of us. Uh, our roots, the past. In one sense, if you try to cut yourself off from your roots, it doesn't seem to work. That can be very painful and uh, feeling, uh, feelings of being lost. And then sometimes people will work very, very hard to get, to get back to their roots or even discover them. Roots here meaning, let's say to begin with, ethnic, racial, religious, national, uh, just from the point of view of where we were born and to what particular group we were born and a feeling of continuity, if you're still very much actively involved in a religion you were born into, then there's a certain strength that can come from that, a certain nourishment, a certain energy. The same with an ethnic and a racial group. And it also doesn't stop there. It comes into Dharma, where the, the different schools vary in terms of how they talk about lineages. This has been my observation over quite a few years now. Some, it's a tremendous amount of talk about lineage, uh, with charts which show you which master transmitted to, from the Buddha all the way coming down. Uh, academic scholars now have shown that most of it is not true just the way countries rewrite their history to make the present, uh, to serve the needs of the present. Um, sometimes the person never existed. Sometimes one master was really three masters and was just condensed into one name. Uh, but it's used to give a feeling of solidarity and continuity and membership and security and a feeling that you're, you belong to something worthwhile and important and to respect what you're in. I have found that when it, it's a, when it becomes a bit much, like you hear it a lot, constantly being reminded of your heritage, let's limit it to Buddhism now. Uh, often there's other things that are lacking, that it's, it's replacing the energy which is going into the present and to real simple, clear investigation. 
I begin to be careful and to not trust it so much. I'm not against it. It becomes sectarianism. Now, the matter of roots in terms of religion, etc., nationality, um, that one can be the most fulfilling and the most dangerous one there is, uh, as probably we all know. Uh, when you really feel, let's say, that it comes from God, where you're, you're in, and that's quite a lineage. <laughs> it's not Zen Master Lin Chi. <laughs> it's the big Zen Master. I remember at one retreat we had here some years ago, there was a rabbi who did a retreat. At the end of the retreat, he was furious with me. And we had a go around, and he told her, it was quite open, he was lost control a bit. And he was saying, that I was uh, seducing all these uh, Jewish American people from their roots and taking them away, and uh, I wasn't doing that. I was just doing what I do here. Uh, and then he pointed his finger and he said, if God had intended you to be a Buddhist, he wouldn't have you born from a Jewish mother in New York. <laughs> I went like, <laughs> I'm serious. And I just, so I said, I don't know. I mean, that's your belief. I don't quite share that belief. Um, all I can say is I'm not rebelling. I'm just very happy where I am. Uh, I've had my own struggle with roots, and so I'm very sympathetic to it. I know the, the pluses and the minuses very well. Um, <clears throat> Wondering whether to open that one up. <laughs> Briefly. Um, on my father's side, 14 generations of rabbis, uh, going all the way back to Germany and Russia and so forth. And my grandfather was Shot, it was about being ordained and quit. He became totally disillusioned. By the time he, his transmission to my father turned my father into a flaming radical. And what he transmitted to me was just religion was total nonsense. And he was strong in it. In the meantime, I went through seven years of Orthodox Hebrew school with a rabbi who had a, a black hat, black coat. You've seen it, you know, in, in Israel and also in Brooklyn. And this was an immigrant community, and I was trying to learn how to be an American. I just wanted to watch Humphrey Bogart and Jimmy Stewart and imitate them, you know, to see you know, how to walk right and to walk, <laughs> chew gum the right way like an American. And it was painful. It was very, very difficult. And um, I left. I left like shot out of a cannon when I, I was, my father said, get bar mitzvah when you're 13. And then you're free, and that's what happened. I haven't been back. But it's not like I've turned my back on it, because I've had to deal with it. I did reject it, because I loved my father, I identified with him totally. And as I grew older, I realized there was a lot of Jewish culture in me. I haven't had particular interest in the religion. And I had to make peace with that, and went through all the different oscillations of over-identification and no-identification, rebellion, you know. 
Um, to finally, I think I'm, I've been rather at peace with it for a while. I see the, the positive side. In other words, I'm happy. The culture that I grew up in equipped me well. I draw upon it for certain, certain happiness that I experienced as a child in a very loving community of people, for the most part. And the, but then meditation has changed it all in a very, to me, very good way. Because finally, no matter what your roots are, and I hope I'm not stepping on someone's toes, particularly it's usually religious, in deep meditation, you get to your real roots. The Dalai Lama puts it beautifully. He says, first and foremost, I'm a human being. Then I'm a Tibetan monk. Then I'm the Dalai Lama. You know, that's like a role that certain, every generation, different Tibetan monks assume. And I think uh, if your meditation is successful, it's not that you have to reject your roots at all. It's part of you or your uh, lineage, if you're in a, 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 a Dharma lineage. But there's something deeper than all of that. One, of, uh, one Cambodian teacher I had told me that when your meditation really starts cooking, he said, you're not Cambodian anymore. You are and you aren't. And that's the way it feels. It feels like I'm at peace with my equipment. My equipment has been made in, you know, Russia, Israel, Germany, wherever it came from, uh, in, in inner stuff. And it's taken on new things. And the final touch was uh, a very important teacher of mine in Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who I think, gave, at least for me, gave me the best advice regarding this that I've had. It was about how to bring the Dharma back to the West, but it goes, I think, beyond that. When I was leaving Thailand to return, I asked him for his advice. And he said, I've never been to the United States. I've mainly lived out my life in Thailand, but uh, based I know the history of the of Buddhist teachings as it's moved through all of Asia. And he said, uh, this is what I think is, might be the most helpful for you. He says, you have to be both radical and conservative. Conservative in that, is there something really valuable in this practice, these teachings that you want to conserve. It's not political conservatism. Of course there is, otherwise why would I have dragged myself all the way to Northeast Thailand? He said, okay. You also have to be radical, because if you bring it back to the United States, and with it bring a lot of Thai traditions, that there, it actually will undermine and defeat and make it more difficult for you to transmit to conserve the, the beautiful part that you do value. So you have to figure it out. You're an American. You, you have to figure it out for your culture. And I've been playing with that. Still I am. Uh, I've gone too far in the traditional part where I've been conserving things that don't need to be cons conserved. They're really just impediments and a, a load, a burden, just for some personal, like a talisman or too far the other way, just cut and just, just be in the now. Uh, where the balance is, <clears throat> if there is something wonderful from your past, you can draw upon it, but is it helping you live in a harmonious, peaceful, wise, compassionate way? If it's not, why not? I mean, so investigate its role, it, it, that, that tradition or that lineage or those roots. And finally, 
to me, the safeguard is in meditation you come to, we all have the same roots. There's, there's only one root. Everyone, in my opinion. Okay. Let's move to the uh, future. What does the Buddha say about that? Don't lose yourself in the future. That's, I think they all pretty much agree with that as a good translation. Don't lose yourself in the future. Um, sometimes our present is quite painful, uh, bleak. We feel discouraged. And a sense of a future that might be in a different place or a different situation or a condition change can actually give us hope and enable us to, by giving us a bit of energy, to use the present well so that it can be helpful. It can be helpful. Um, the Dharma point of view is very cautious about hope. Certainly when people feel hopeless, they're driven to desperate things, both as, in, both as individuals and as groups, in terms of violence towards themselves and towards others. So a feeling of hopelessness is not what's being encouraged. But hope, if not understood properly, can be an obstacle, in fact, a deep obstacle. Because we can put so much energy into what will come. If I keep meditating like this, Someday I'm going to just have that radiant mind and heart that I keep reading about. In the meantime, what's happening right now? What, what's your life like right now? And what can happen is we so get lost in our imaginings of a bright future, defer our, the only life we have, which is right now, for imaginings to such a, of a future to such a degree that it prevents us from having the energy to really take proper care of the present, to use the present to transform ourselves if you're on the path. And so again, it's sort of skillful use. You know, they're all, uh, I, I remember being in the army, we were the typical, the, the unit I was in, most of, we were all from age 18 to 20, some were 17. And as we got, as we got closer to the time we had, we were in Europe for two years, first time away from home for most of us. And we would count the days and have all these stories about what it's going to be like when we get back home. And, uh, and that was to get us through it. Only three more days and then I'm out of here, man. You know, just GI talk. But it served its purpose. But then when we got home, of course, it wasn't exactly like what we thought. <laughs> but it did help a bit. Uh, my grandparents told me that um, my grandfather left for America eight years before he could bring his family to earn the money to bring them. And they were in great danger in Russia. And the high point would be every, every month or six weeks a letter would arrive from the United States and he would tell them what it was like in America to perk up their hopes because um, that everyone was working towards that, towards getting out. And so that can be useful. Um, 
you have to ask, what's it doing? Any of your use of the future, of the past, is it real? What's it doing for me? What's its function? And if you're, if you're living a life of awareness, you, you begin to see pretty clearly why you're doing what you're doing. And then it's a matter of living that understanding or betraying it. And often we know exactly why we're doing something and we do it again and again and again. We don't live our understanding. Then uh, investigate that. Look at that. Why is it I know exactly what to do or not to do? Where to go or where not to go? And I don't do it. Meditation is very practical. Then you bring the awareness into that place where you're stuck as not to eliminate it, but to understand it. Another way in which the future, uh, let's say with choiceless awareness, we're in the very fine-grained, as we've been doing in our sitting practice, fine-grained, it's really an application of being in the present moment. That's all it's about. Just be in the present moment with whatever is filling up the present moment. When something comes up in the present moment, let's say when you're meditating, this is fairly common, I think, and it's a problem, capital P, in italics. When we, when we see something as problematic, the emphasis goes on how to take care of it, how to end it, how to resolve it, how to cure it, how to heal it, how to fix it. And what the teachings are saying is, the best way to do that is to bring sustained, careful, non-judgmental attention to the problem. Don't be in a hurry for your solution, because a, the solution that can come out of genuine, clear, deep seeing, that can be a, a real solution, rather than uh, being so edgy and antsy about wanting it to be over with, and wanting meditation to deliver you from it. And that's one that uh, practice helps us get comfortable with more and more. So staying in the moment has I would say, so many connotations. Um, this one I think we all know well. Where the future, instead of it being a bright future, which we use to uh, brighten up a drab present, is an envisioned horrible future. Uh, and in the sutra, the Buddha talks about, let me read it. This was also said about the past, but to save time. Uh, by the way, you'll all have a, a copy of the, the Dharma poem, the Gata, before you go home. Uh, sometime tomorrow. Uh, bhikkhus, or you could say yogis, meditators, what is meant by losing yourself in the future? When someone thinks about the way their body will be in the future, the way their feelings will be in the future, the way their perceptions will be in the future, the way their, their mental uh, factors, uh, mental formations, I think would be a better word, uh, will be in the future, the way co consciousness will be in the future, when, when one thinks about these things and the mind is burdened by and, by and daydreaming about these things which belong to the future, then that person is losing himself in the future. 
these are the, those of you who know something about Buddhist psychology, the five khandhas. The Buddha's way of um, conceptualizing what we might call the mind-body process. The body itself, feelings, sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and then the ways in which we label and make distinctions in reality, very important. And then all the mental formations, reactivity and uh, wanting and so forth, and then consciousness itself, just the receiving of experience. Uh, if you reflect back in the, to go into the past, to when you were much younger and more agile and uh, more attractive or handsome or intelligent or whatever, having to do with had better ideas and were clearer perceiving and on and on about these five khandhas, uh, as you're bemoaning the fact that you're not that way now, sort of the good old days, as you begin to enter the, your golden years, <laughs> what is euphemistically called the golden years, um, that can become an ongoing struggle, where quite a joyless one, where you're fighting with the natural process. Uh, I receive mail from different organizations because I have an interest in, um, I've done a, a, little, a bit of teaching on it and a lot of practice with it, on aging, sickness, death, learning how to live, learning how to die, and so forth. One is, uh, I've been invited again and again, uh, anti-aging association. <laughs> okay. And if I were to answer, which I won't, I would say I'm not anti-aging. And their literature has a lot to do, join us and help us in the war against aging. <laughs> I'm not at war with aging. What would that, well, maybe sometimes, but what would that look like? I mean, that would be like uh, attacking the Atlantic Ocean, you know, you know or the Himalaya Mountains. Uh, I think we know who's going to win. Uh, and people can get so uh, in, caught up in the struggle of losing uh, past formations, physical and mental, not as sharp anymore, all the jokes about, yeah, oh, yeah, it's an early stage of senility, yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> uh, if that comes up, and it comes up, but with practice you can lay that to rest and more learn how to be comfortable with where you actually are, because that's what being in the moment is. Sometimes we're so stuck in the past that we need something in the present to throw cold water on us. Uh, a friend of mine in Cambridge, who's been doing this practice for many years, um, an older gentleman, let's leave it at that for the moment, he went to buy some tickets, theater tickets, and the person selling the tickets looked at him and said, oh, you know, you can have senior citizen rates. And he freaked out. And he just said, no, 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 I just want to pay the regular rate. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, what can I say? Um, the future is a, there's a, a, a wonderful, by the way, I'm not going to get through everything, but 
I think what I'll do is, Michael and I have already talked it over, there's a bit of time on s Saturday. And I'll, whatever I don't finish, I'll finish up a little bit on uh, uh, whatever's left on Saturday. We ha maybe it'll be a half hour or so. Possibly some of it having to do with, okay, no, no previews needed. <laughs> um, sorry, I was going to say something and I... Something about the future. Move on with the, uh, with the sutta. So, if you recall, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the yogi dwells in stability and freedom. Now, that's uh, crucial to this sutta. It's been translated in different ways. Um, what, it, what it's talking about is that I think I need to it's talking about um, direct contact with the present moment uh, which keeps you from getting lost in the past and in the future. When you're really attentive, that breaks the momentum of, quite naturally, it's not a violent act. You're so in the present that there's no room for past or future. When you are caught uh, in past, future, and the next that's to come up, which is what I'm leading into, is um, taken in by the present, swept away by the present. It's not just the past and the future caught in the present when the kilesas, greed, hatred, delusion, those powerful toxins, poisons that are in our psyche, or whatever language you like, when they are so strong that they take over the moment. And uh, what the Buddha is talking about here, he uses, when one translation, strong language is used, that is, when you're either caught up in the past, the future, or the present in either of those, it's talked about as being vanquished you're defeated. And also the term, the ter a term that's used in one of the, as, um, the translations is invincible and unshakable. Uh, and what this is saying is that when mindfulness is steady, unwavering, and it sees deeply into past, present, or future, and it sees the impermanent, empty nature of what's happening. Uh, the kalesas are no match, no matter what is there. 
insight is invincible, or his real wisdom is stronger than any of the things that we've been concerned about as causing the problems. When the practice gets strong and the seeing is not pushed around by conditions, if you see what we're doing, we're bringing the mind along, training it, re-educating it, bringing in all kinds of practices to help it get to the point where it's unwavering so that what it is stronger that whatever, than whatever comes in front of it. Some of you have reported powerful things that have come up in your consciousness that have sucked you in, frightening things, imaginings about disastrous uh, things that are going to happen to you and to others or being lost in uh, past pain. Can, we, can the mind become so clear, so steady, and begin to see whatever has arisen in this moment, whether it's a past memory, I mean, a memory would be the past, whether it's uh, a future imagining, or whether it's some preoccupation about the present that is keeping you from direct, intimate contact with the present. And uh, practice is more and more and more developing a quality of looking so that that seeing is stronger than anything that comes in front of it. Can you see how that is already liberation? How that is a different way to be with life? It's not that trouble doesn't come your way. If, if you're alive, there's trouble. Every dawn, it brings with it new challenges, new suffering, new unexpected uncertainties. We know that. But what if you're through applying yourself to the practice that the quality of attention, of mindfulness, was such that it was steadier than any condition that was coming in front of you, making those faces that are scaring you, or putting out words that are so enticing that we're caught in them. That's the whole point. Then we needn't, we can look at our fears, we can look at our loneliness, we can look at our boredom, etc., etc. Now, we don't have to wait until we're perfect. We're already doing it. True, we get thrown much of the time. We are not able to do it, but we come back. A retreat, an intensive practice retreat, one of the many values of it, is that all of us together enable each of us to practice in ways that we perhaps could not alone. No matter how discouraged you've gotten, no matter how frightened you've gotten, you look around and the gang is still here. Even if you don't know us, to, you know, just a little bit. Uh, so you go back. Maybe you take a walk and then you come back and you come to your cushion again and again. And little by little, uh, you can develop the ability so you don't need uh, the support. It's nice when you have it, of course, but it's not a prerequisite to clear seeing. Because if the only time you could meditate is to round up a group of people, uh, that's pretty limited. Because there are going to be a lot of times when there's no one around, most of the time, or no meditators. So what the Buddha is more and more pointing to, and I think I'm going to end with a, the implications of something, which we'll draw out later on, on Saturday. I'm going to reread that and then go into the next. 
Let me start right from the beginning. I know you know it. Read it, hear it in a meditative way. I'm going to read it slowly. If you want, you can close your eyes. I'll keep talking a little bit more, not much. Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. Future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the yogi dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today. To wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The, the sage calls a person who knows how to do this, that we just started talking about, one who dwells in mindfulness, someone who knows, I'm going to use one of the translations, true solitude. Um, I want to link up this, why bring in death into this? I don't think it's an accident. First of all, uh, the Buddhist teaching often is reminding us of our mortality. It's not a, a specialized thing. It's a general part of the teaching, and it's not reserved for old fogies. It's for you to understand that you don't have forever and to make the best use of your life, to get your priorities in order. Obviously, this is being aimed at people who are meditating, so as for that to become a very strong priority. And what it is saying is, if you are spending enormous amounts of time lost in the past, lost in your future imaginings, constantly swept up in the present, uh, please wake up, because you don't have forever. I think that's what it's saying. Good way to finish everyone off. <laughs> I apologize. But it is true. The truth shall set you, set you free. I hear that. And what is true is it's in here. It's not far away. Not in Tibet, or Burma, or Thailand, or wherever you want to go. Because wherever you go, try to leave us on a light note. Uh, many years ago, I saw one of the worst films I've ever seen. I lasted about 15 minutes, walked out. It was called Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> <laughs> but there was one brilliant line in it very early on in the film, and it kept me there, and then I saw that this, it's not, that's it. Uh, he says, no matter where you go, there you are again. So, we have to take care of it. And I remembered what I forgot. It came back. So I'm going to tell it to you, and it doesn't take long, and it's, it's just about eight. There's a play written by Eugene O'Neill. I saw a very wonderful rendering of it in the village many years ago. Um, and it's called The Iceman Cometh. Many of you know the play. It takes place in what I guess would be called, in quotes, a flop house. And a whole bunch of men who are just tragically washed up into this low-cost place, they're all, it's, they're all d discouraged. And, and they live constantly reflecting 
on how in the future they're going to, I used to be a stockbroker, and then, and then the person goes on and on how someday they're going to go back and get their office and dress, and another one is of this, and, another, and they're all talking about the wonderful days that are to come when they are, and they're just here for a little while. But every year, someone comes to visit them, and when he comes, he joins them, and he gets drunk with them, and, he, and his name is Hickey, as I recall. I think Jason Robarts played his role when I saw the play. And they, they're waiting for Hickey to come because he always brings lots of goodies and he's a good storyteller and he joins them and, and they're all in the future, endlessly. The dialogue just goes on and on. Finally, Hickey turns up and he says, this year is different. I'm not going to just roll in the, on the floor with all of you. I've worked it out. You've wanted, I don't remember the occupations. You wanted to be a stockbroker? I've got it all set up. I have a job for you. You wanted to be an ex? I'm, it's okay. I'm going to take care of that. Come on with me. And, he's, and, the people, and it ends, they're just terrified. <laughs> it, it ends in a, in a way that the last thing they want is reality. And it's sort of cruel on his part because he crushes where they are. They never really felt that they were going to go out. Um, so time, our relationship to time, is an important one. Uh, coming to know how we relate to to time is essential, I think, to Dharma practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.